1: Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
0: Happy New Year, Slight Change listeners. New Year's resolutions can feel impossible to keep. But in the last few years, I've made it a point to internalize research insights from behavioral science, and they've helped me set smarter goals and actually stick to them. And so we've decided to go back into the archives and share interviews with experts who delve into some useful strategies for making change. They'll give you the practical tools and motivation you need to not only set great goals, but to sustain your commitments well into 2023. In our final episode of this special New Year's miniseries, we'll hear from psychologist Angela Duckworth, who teaches us how to cultivate more grit, a power combo of passion and perseverance. Plus, she offers advice on how we can resist some of the daily distractions that often get in the way of reaching our goals. And spoiler alert, it will not involve self-control. As always, I'd love to hear which insights resonate most with you. You can connect with me on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker.
2: What makes a great graphic designer, uh, you know, same as like a great ballerina, but also the same as like a world-class mathematician,
0: but also the same as like civic activist. Like what do they have in common? According to psychologist Angela Duckworth, the answer is grit, a power combo of passion and perseverance. Angela says natural ability and access to opportunity will of course give you a head start, but they alone won't get you to the finish line. And focusing too much on natural ability can be counterproductive because it's something we can't change about ourselves. So when it comes to reaching our big goals, Angela wants us to reorient our focus to the thing we can change, which is the sustained effort we pour into the things we care about. When
2: we say like, oh, well, you know, she or he's a genius and I'm not. I mean, it really does let you off the hook, right? Like if they have something you don't have, some magical X factor, right, then you don't have any obligation to wake up at five in the morning and
0: and, and train and to like, you know, do all the hard things. On today's episode, Angela Duckworth teaches us how to cultivate grit, channel that grit, and resist some of the temptations that often get in the way of achieving success. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. Angela's a true expert on grit. She's been studying the topic for over a decade now as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. And her TED Talk on passion and perseverance has garnered over 25 million views. I started out our conversation by diving into the basics, starting with the definition of grit.
2: I define grit as the combination of passion and perseverance over the very long term. So that doesn't mean that like every day you're doing the exact same thing, but you have a kind of overall ambition or goal. You know, like I wanna help people uh, live better lives through behavioral science. You know, I wanna be the best pediatrician that I can be. You know, I wanna be a a great musician, whatever it is. And there's also uh, perseverance, like working really hard, taking feedback and learning. I mean, really trying to stay in a game and work hard at that game uh,
0: in a resilient way over time. So passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Um, When I was a kid, I remember feeling like it was all about natural talent. Like, in music school, everyone was so quick to try to identify the latest prodigy, right? The prodigies, right. Absolutely. I remember there was this violinist, Rachel. Not that I still remember you, Rachel, but you were amazing. (laughs) Hi, Rachel. Um, Hi, Rachel. I won't say your last name because I don't want to embarrass you, but she was a few years younger than me, and she was such a gifted violinist. I mean, I felt like everything that was hard for me seemed to come easily to her, Mm. and Rather than internalizing, oh, I guess this is a lesson to me that I need to work harder, I actually just felt despondent, right? I felt like, okay, well, should I just give up? Because I don't have it. I don't have what it takes. Hmm. And so the only way forward was for me to just keep practicing. Um, but I, I, I can't say that wasn't without some suffering and ment- mental anguish about the fact that I I always felt like I was a little behind. And so I, I feel so passionately about evangelizing, your research in this space because I feel like I fell victim to aspects of it as a child, right? It actually hurt my psychology. Do you um, do you know the research of Chia Jung-sei? You, you wrote about her in your book, right? Yeah, okay,
2: right. So exactly. And I, I, I wrote about how Chia was a musician like you, right? And how she, um, uh, I think, you know, given like her personal experience with music. I mean, I think that music in particular, right, there are certain domains where, you know, it's people talk about prodigies and, you know, there are YouTube videos of prodigies and it really is amazing. And you see a kid who's five, you know, do something that it just makes you think like, that must be something that's born, not made. And those people are special. Uh, and and like you, she she really felt, I mean, so impassioned about like, hey, you know, come see the thousands of hours of practice and, and you won't use the word natural, you know, so flippantly. And I'll just say that, you know, it's not that anybody, or at least that I would say that we're all equally talented. I mean, I think that would be right? Like ridiculous. And I think the the key is, is that, you know, when you're young and you're trying to figure out, like, should I keep going or should I not keep going? Or frankly, I guess at any age, if you just obsess about these differences in things that you can't change, I do think it can overshadow, you know, the things that you can change. Right. And um, and all those thousands of hours of practice that that you put in that she put
0: in, you know, those are like not very fun to watch on YouTube, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to hear more, Angela. Why? Why are we such suckers for natural ability? Like I was talking with my husband the other night and he was saying in high school, um, you were really cool if you got good grades without trying at all. And by the way, mm. I mean, really cool in very nerdy circles. I was going to say, like, what high school clarify? did you go to? <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, just to clarify. Um, but it's like, oh, he got a B-plus without studying? Like, imagine if he had studied, you know, and there's this, this aura around people who, who don't try hard. What, what in our human behavior gives rise to this fascination with natural ability?
2: Well, I can only speculate, but people do have a preference for people that we consider to be naturals, and uh, we prefer them over strivers, even when we know that they have accomplished the same thing. And, you know, I remember reading what Nietzsche wrote about this, and he said, you know, when we consider that other people are naturals, but we aren't, right? When we say like, oh, well, you know, she or he's a genius, and I'm not. I mean, it really does, like, let you off the hook right yeah. like if they have something you don't have some magical x factor right then you don't have any obligation to wake up at five in the morning and, and and train and to like, you know, do all the hard things. I think there's at least a part of it that's like that. And, you know, there's something kind of fun about thinking that people are like demigods or like we tell little kids like, Oh, you're a child prodigy in piano or painting. I think there's just something fun and mystical about it too. Right? Like we like to think they're, they're just qualitatively different. I, I, I do think though, that if you, we can, you know, tilt things such that the honor and the glory goes to people who have earned what they do in a very transparent way, um, that's maybe not as romantic, then, then we will be doing a great service to our kids. Because, I mean, I, I really don't know anybody uh, who has become world-class in economics or at being a political leader uh, or, or anything else, you know, a classroom teacher, a nurse, like without, you know, just years and years of effort.
0: So at this point in our conversation, Angela's made a strong argument for the importance of grit. But is grit, like talent, one of those things you've either got or you don't? Like in addition to raw talent, did Rachel the violinist also have more grit than me? Okay, she probably did, but that's because she's Rachel. And so of course she did. But here's the good news. We can cultivate grit. Angela says there are four key things we can all do in our lives to build some grit. Number one, find out what interests you
2: people who are really gritty have this intrinsic interest and curiosity about what they're doing. So you can, you know, start a book club if you're at work at a job and you're like, hey, I don't learn a lot. You can, you know, start listening to a podcast like this one that, you know, really engages your mind, et cetera. But interest, I think, is the first seed uh, of passion. You know, interests are, um, you know, what naturally grabs our attention. I think that's the best definition of what an interest is. It's like, you know, without effort or without will, you just want to think
0: about it. Yeah. And one thing you said is that our interests actually remain relatively stable over the course of our lives and even our personalities. And so one way we can identify what we're naturally interested in is to look back at our childhood and try and remember what it is that lit us up or made us tick.
2: I do want to say, Maya, and it's important to know that you know interests evolve, so they're not static. So it's not like you know if you're interested in something when you're 14, that's exactly what you'll be interested in when you're 54. But I do think actually, if you introspect a little bit and you remember what you were like in high school, right? This is during the period of adolescence when. Um, interests tend to get more specific yeah. and differentiated. And if you think back, and if I think back, you know, to my own 16 and 17 year old self, what was I interested in? Well, I signed up for a summer school class in psychology and I signed up for a summer school class in nonfiction writing, right? I didn't pick chemistry. I didn't pick philosophy. I didn't pick. So, so I think in some ways, you know, what do I do now? Well, I do a lot of psychology and I do a lot of nonfiction writing. So, so I do you think that trip down memory lane can sometimes just, um, you know, remind us in a way of the things. Um, but another um, uh, tip for you, if you don't want to just introspect, is like literally ask the people that you um, that you love most. You know, if I ask my husband, like, Jason, what am I interested in? I mean, it sounds like a crazy thing to ask. Like, shouldn't I know? But he will tell me what he observes. He's like, well, when I see you read the newspaper, you're always reading the food section, vows. <laughs> you know, like he's like, he just, when we went to visit houses, when we were shopping for houses, Instead of asking about the plumbing and the mortgage and the abatement, I was like, so then they got divorced? And then what happened? <laughs> the realtor was like, well, and then, and my husband was like, and this has nothing to do with this house. And I'm like, I know, but it's so interesting. I just want to know. So that's me and human nature. So um, take a trip down memory lane, but also ask some people who know you and love you, you know, what do you think I'm interested in? And I think you
0: might learn something. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You and I are totally the same. That's always my interest too. <laughs> Let's like, not
2: buy a house together. Yeah, we we'll end buy up a with a terrible exactly.
0: house. Angela's second tip for building grit. Once you found an interest, go all in. Engage in focused practice and set clear goals. Step three is all about thinking about the big picture. Angela says to ask yourself, why are you doing the thing you're doing? What's your sense of purpose? And then finally, step four, cultivate a growth mindset which is the idea that we should think about our mind as a muscle that can grow with hard work and perseverance.
2: Basically, being optimistic about how people's abilities can change uh, and how we're not necessarily as fixed as sometimes we're tempted to think we are. Um, And it's something that, uh, you know, I'm still working on. I I sometimes slip into a fixed mindset sometimes, and
0: I I try to let my growth mindset voice um, have its say. One person who inspires Angela to keep her growth mindset front and center is a former student of hers, David Long.
2: So David Long, I met years ago when, let's see, more than 20 maybe now. Um, I was a high school math teacher in the San Francisco public schools, and David was in my class. And I noticed from you know the, the first week of school that this kid, David, really liked math and frankly was pretty talented, but apparently not talented enough to have made it uh, past the cut score that would have placed him in his freshman year in a higher level math class. So I marched David over to the department chair, whose name was Liz. And I say, Liz, like, you know, a grievous error has been made. This kid should be in the higher level math class. And Liz is amazing. And she moved things around. So what happened next? Well, David graduated from high school. uh, And then he went on to get a PhD in um, uh, aerospace engineering as somebody who basically uses math every day. And so I think the the lesson of david is that it's very easy to make a mistake you know about somebody's potential you know like oh their sat score is not high enough you know it's like oh you're not gifted and talented but these other kids they are gifted and talented you know these kids they're going to go to ap calculus those kids they're not and we do it all the time right and i think if we can restructure education in a way that doesn't have these like, um, you know, problems of off ramps and on ramps where we're like sorting kids. And and frankly, we're doing it very early in their life. And if we could say instead, hey, if you have the motivation, and if with support, you can keep up um, in these classes, like the door is open. I mean, I think that would be a much better way to run things.
0: Yeah. And one thing I loved about David's story is that when he was moved to the advanced class and initially wasn't scoring very well on those early exams right getting a C and then getting a D he he brushed it off he's like I wasn't happy about it but you know he didn't he wasn't demoralized he didn't give up he just kept working harder You know,
2: that that knife edge, right? You get a D or a C. My own daughter, Amanda, when she was uh, maybe a little younger than David, I think she was still in middle school, but she had tested into this more advanced track. And so she, you know, she settles in and, you know, she's getting her first exams back. I think she failed. I mean, failed she's gonna say she like failed um i believe like the first few exams and i have to confess to you maya i was like oh maybe this isn't for you i mean i looked at this math curriculum and i was like holy smokes like this is (laughs) really hard you get like all the way through bc calculus before the end of junior year i was like why don't you just not do this hard thing and my husband was such a better parent than me he you know, worked with her. And I remember the stacks of scrap paper they had. I mean, they just put in so much work. And I think for him, it was very important that at that young age, that she not encode. I can't do this, like I'm not smart enough, like I'm a girl, I'm whatever, but like, I can't do this. So he didn't really care that she, you know, became a mathematician. But I will tell you what the epilogue of that story is. Amanda's 20, she is um, on track to being a math major at Harvard. Um, you know, she would not say that things come easily to her. Like she would not say that like in her math classes, you know, you know, she's the fastest or the, but, but she does love math. And I think those early experiences where it was a threat to her, you know, self image, but then that she had a loving parent who I wish I could say it was me, but it was, <laughs> it was my, you know, my better half. I, I just think that's really important. And I, I know that one of the things that you have worked, you know, you know so hard on his equity and and i think that like you know one of the very deep issues in this country is like how many kids have somebody in their life who's going to do what my husband did for my daughter or do what i had time to do with david and his you know his other teachers and you know how much you know wasted potential is there and how many kids are walking around thinking they're not that smart uh because you know they haven't had the opportunity to see what they can do
0: We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans.
1: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms apply.
0: Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insights. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off.
2: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences,
0: We're back with Angela Duckworth, who's teaching us about the science of grit and how it can help us achieve our goals. Once we've cultivated grit, the next step is to make sure we channel whatever grit we do have in the right way. And this is where deliberate practice comes into play.
2: Deliberate practice is a term that was coined by Anders Ericsson, uh, who was a great cognitive psychologist. I mean, really, he was the world expert on world experts, and really believed strongly. He he always, you know, would talk about growing up in Sweden uh, in in a family that, um, you know shared with him the worldview that like Anders, you know, if you're really interested in something and you are willing to work hard at it, like who would be the one to say that you couldn't do great things. So he grew up without a kind of talent myth in his own personal life, but then he encountered it as he, you know, would then move on into like, you know, wider circles. And, and, and so a lot of his research was on the practice element uh, of excellence. In fact, you could argue like all of his research in some ways was that there are, um, let's say three elements, but if you if you count the fact that you have to do them again and again in repetition, then you could say there are four uh, of deliberate practice. Um, one is that when you're practicing something, right, and we're all practicing something, right, you know, you want to make a better omelet, you want to be a better podcaster, you want to be a better writer, better leader, better mother, whatever, whatever it is that you're working on, you have to actually fractionate your overall performance into like tiny parts. And And what experts do is they only work at one thing at a time. So this is kind of laser-like focus on one small element of their overall performance, right?
0: Yeah. Um, I I love this notion of of sub-goals. And it reminds me, when I was working in in government and public policy, there was research coming out on how we can motivate folks to seek employment after they lost their job. So folks that are on unemployment insurance. And it's very psychologically daunting um, to say, my goal is to find work. And so parsing it into these micro steps, these more manageable steps like tomorrow, I'm going to go get a business suit Friday, I'm going to edit the top half of my CV. Saturday, I'm going to reach out to three different um, employers, you know, that type of technique was so effective in accelerating people's success when it came to, to finding work. You know whether it's learning to walk again, or whether to write—you know how to write a book. Um, you
2: know what—just so anything that's daunting to you, like applying to college. You know, getting your driver's license. You know, the the secret to uh, doing those things is to not do the big thing, but to make it into manageable small things and if you ask me how small i would say you can't go too small and 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 that is because like if you do accomplish the tiny tiny goal that you set guess what you just have more confidence going into the next one
0: yeah so we've talked about articulating specific goals versus general goals uh what's next after that um second element is that you really have to
2: focus 100 i mean you have to try you know it's like the opposite of multitasking and I know this sounds kind of simple and straightforward and obvious, but um, just as an indication of what Anders means, I mean, really the top performers that he tended to study would only do true deliberate practice at this level of focus and concentration for a few hours a day. It was um, seemingly not possible to do much more than that, even at the peak of your powers. So that's full concentration and effort. And then the third element is feedback. Uh, and And feedback is that gift that, you know, we don't wanna unwrap, right? And I think one of the remarkable things about these world-class performers, you know, much more than their gold medals or their statues or their trophies is that they are remarkably open to and even eager for feedback, especially uh, when it's critical and that's the remarkable thing. So, so do those three things, have a precise goal of what exactly it is that you're working on, work on that with 100% focus and attention get a feedback usually immediately is the best. Um, And then like after processing that feedback, repeat the cycle.
0: Okay, so now we've got our four strategies for building grit and a deeper understanding of what it means to really practice. So we're all set, right? Not quite. And that's because temptations of all kinds creep into our daily lives and prevent us from acting on these recommendations. And so Angela being Angela, has four tips to help us reel in the temptations.
2: My number one trick for this is um, is to use your situation uh, for you, not against you. If you're on your cell phone too much, don't keep it in your bedroom. You know, keep it face down, keep it on a high shelf. Frankly, give it to somebody else and have them take it away from you. I think that's probably the ultimate self control trick. But that's all about your situation. You can say, look, if the situation is really influential, you know, I'll put my sneakers by the door to remind me. I'll I'll like you know find a gym that's closer to me. I'll I'll find a form of exercise that's that's more fun for me and all these ways are changing the situation and not changing willpower the second trick is to change where you pay attention. You know, Bob Mankoff, the um, editor of the New Yorker cartoons for, for many years, you know, he would actually point his, you know, body like away from the monitor that had his email because when he had really hard editorial work to do, like he he knew he had to like look over here and not look over there. Um, and this is very instinctive for, for many of us, but just, you know, do it more intentionally. The third trick is to actually change the way you think about things, right? So, so you have to like, you know, maybe rethink exercise if it's, it's on your to-do list as a chore. Could you make it, you know, like Adele has recently said, you know, her me time, right? Like that shift to this is time where I can be me and like, and, you know, nobody else is like asking me to do anything. Like I can listen to the music I want. I can do whatever I want. Like that's a, a way of changing the way you think about a situation that can improve self-control. And then fourth, I'm going to say something that is um you know really important for anything that you want to do and that's to make a plan. You know, if you think like oh that trick about cell phones, what a good idea or like oh that trick about attention, what a good idea. Well, if after this, you know, conversation that you listen on a podcast like you don't make a plan about like when you're going to do that, you know, it's just going to evaporate into the air. And so so in other words, I think there are all kinds of tricks, but if you want to organize them, change your situation, change your attention, change the way you think
0: about your situation, and then finally make a plan. In other words, rather than trying hard to exert willpower and then failing, as we often do, it's really about setting up your situation so that you don't even need to use willpower, something it seems many kids have already figured out. I love in the Walter Michelle study with, with the marshmallow test, and obviously there have been some critiques of what the study showed, but there's one element that that certainly holds. And just for listeners who aren't familiar, in this particular study, kids were offered a choice between one marshmallow, which would be immediate, but if they waited and didn't consume the marshmallow for some period of time, they would actually be given two. Um, so it was a test of delayed gratification and kids' willingness to exert self-control in the moment. And some of the kids who are most effective at waiting modified their situation. They would physically cover the marshmallow or, you know, they would very cutely cover their own eyes so they couldn't see the marshmallow. And that was their way of minimizing the need for willpower, right? Because if you can't see it, then it's less of a temptation. And actually, Walter then did random assignment experiments because, you know, he
2: wanted to know, is it really causal? Like, you know, how can I really? And when you put a plate over the marshmallow, kids can wait, you know, more than twice as long as when the marshmallows are right there. And and so once you're a little more consciously aware of this, it just means that in those momentary conflicts between good for me versus A little easier for me. You know, you got to switch the dynamic. Don't say, like, I'll just use willpower. It doesn't it doesn't really work.
0: <laughs> yeah. no, I, I'm just chuckling right now, remembering like 11-year-old Maya who would take her Calvin and Hobbes books and put them on her music stand <laughs> over over her sheet music. That's the opposite of what we're after yeah. here, right? <laughs> well, depending yes. on okay, what your goal it. is. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> a... I think my goal was to practice, um, but actually I ended up getting through Bill Watterson's you know, four, four book collection. Um, okay, so one of the people I interviewed is Annie Duke. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she talks about the importance of learning how to quit more. And obviously, these two concepts are compatible. There are contexts in which it makes sense to quit versus grit and vice versa. In your experience, what are examples of situations where you think people have shown grit, but they probably shouldn't have? Like, are there any signals people can look out for um, that can tee up? Oh, yeah, maybe actually this is a moment where I should step back or I I should stop trying? I completely agree
2: with both you and Annie that it's possible to hang on too long. Like you can throw good money after bad. I mean, you could, uh, you know, buy a bicycle and think it's a bargain. And then, you know, like you end up replacing the wheels and, and the fender. And like pretty soon you have the cost of more than a bicycle, but you keep, you know, repairing. I mean, it's just at some point in that process, if you had walked away and said, you know what, I wasted $70. But if I keep with this, I'm going to waste $170, right? Like it's very hard for us to sometimes detach ourselves. So so when to quit and when to grit is an excellent question. And I think for me, the the when to quit and when to grit question is answered with why, you know, like why did you buy a bicycle, right? And if the answer to that question is, you know, answerable like okay well the reason why i bought a bicycle is because like i really want to get to work faster or like i want to find a way to work out or you know it's it's the end not the means when you've reflected on the why you're like okay what am i doing here like why am i doing this and you think okay you know what, there's an easier way to get there. You know, there's a better way to get there. Um, That's when you should quit and then take that other route. However, if you think about what you're doing and you're like, this is why I'm doing it, and there is no other way, then, you know, it is rational to keep going. So I think actually asking yourself why, you know, in those moments of frustration, it's not just, you know, is it the noble thing to keep going or not. It's, it's not that simple. You have to ask, you know, in a way that's reflective, like, why am I doing this in the first place? Um, and I think it can give you that flexibility that you need um, to, uh,
0: you know, question your assumptions. Yeah. And I think we're seeing people act on that, like in sports, for example, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, others who are saying, oh, actually, I am pushing myself beyond the limits. And maybe their why is ultimately I do this sport so that I can be happy. And at some point, the infringement on my well-being is so severe, the the cost-benefit doesn't pay off anymore, right? There's at least some awareness around that. Yeah. Angela's recently developed an exciting new college course at the University of Pennsylvania. It's called Grit Lab. It's a semester-long course dedicated to getting students to walk the walk on all the recommendations we talked about in this episode.
2: So if you're a student in my class, you read about grit, but you also every week have an exercise. So I know my you want everyone to go out and try deliberate practice. Well, that is a homework assignment for my class. It's like this week, you know, you can all practice what you want, but we're all going to do deliberate practice and then reflect on it. Goal setting, okay, everybody's going to set a goal and make a plan this week, and then we're going to reflect on that. You know, curiosity, okay, everybody's going to go and have a curiosity conversation with someone they don't know about something that they're interested in, and then we're going to reflect on it. So what have I learned from teaching students uh, grit lab? Well, Well, I think people make changes when they do it with other people. Say you're listening to this conversation and you've made a little resolution and you know you shouldn't use willpower. You're going to change your situations. But if you do that with your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend, if you do that with a best friend, if you do that with a coworker, now you have the two of you and it's social and it's totally different than like you on your own failing or succeeding uh, completely in isolation. And so Grit Lab is all built around teams, et cetera. But it's kind of this social thing that we're doing together for 14 weeks and not just like, oh, go off on your own, read this book and do things entirely by yourself. So that's just one of the insights. But I guess personally, I'll just say like, you know, my why, Maya, like, you know, what wakes me up early and keeps me going on bad days is for me you know everything that you talk about you know in in this um you know format and everything that you've worked on everything that i work on it really has the potential
0: to harness behavioral insights to to make people's lives better oh i love that well i will tell you your students loved grit lab and I actually reached out to some of them before our interview uh, to see how the class might have changed their life and i just wanted to share one testimonial <laughs> uh listener feedback which was really beautiful and and moving um One of my biggest struggles at Penn has been learning how to admit to myself when I need help and to proactively ask for help from others, whether it be a friend or a classmate. Grit Lab taught me that seeking out feedback, wisdom, and advice from others is not a weakness, but an incredible power that we all have that allows us to foster our own growth by being open and honest about our limits.
2: I love that. And I'm hoping that student remembers uh, we had a whole week on feedback, you know, the science of feedback. We had to practice giving and getting feedback. And every class, the student remembers I got feedback and I was, you know, rated by the students on a scale from zero to 10, from zero, like, that was a complete waste of my time, Dr. Duckworth, to 10, (laughs) like, you blew my mind. Like, that was amazing. And then I got, uh, you know, qualitative comments. And I was very open with students about how defensive I felt when I got low numbers and when they told me things that I could do better and differently and then I tried to model over them like hey look I'm defensive that crushed me and I learned three things and this is why like today we're going to do things differently and I I don't want to make it seem easy but I do think that just that student's testimonial and and just the potential for you know the science of feedback the science of practice you know the science of interest the science of situation modification you know there is this enormous untapped potential to to make our lives better.
0: Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shankar. The best part of creating this show is getting to collaborate with my formidable Slight Change family. This includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia LaBelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our delightful theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. And please remember to subscribe, share, and rate the show to help get the word out. See you next week. This is Amy Brown from four things with Amy Brown today healthier is happening at CVS health in more ways than you've ever seen its wellness destinations for seniors including select locations with Oak Street health and CVS pharmacy its doctors nurses pharmacists and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone.